Welcome back to the Brook Club. I'm Brooke. In this episode, I will be discussing the book Invisible Girl by Lisa Jewell. As always, I'll be going through this book from beginning to end, so definitely spoiler alert. I rated this book a 9.5 out of 10. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, I want to give the quickest summary of this book because I'm assuming most listeners have read Invisible Girl. At its core, this book is about a girl named Sapphire going missing and an involuntary celibate man, Owen, being wrongfully accused of her abduction. The story also follows a woman, Kate, whose husband was previously the missing girl's therapist. Along with a missing girl, the London village the characters reside in is experiencing a rash of sexual assaults. Where is Sapphire? Who is the assaulter? And are these mysteries related? I love Lisa Jewell's writing style. I loved the narration in this book, and I specifically loved the access the reader had to the character's emotions. The differentiation of narration styles between chapters, depending on which character the chapter focused on, was impressive to me. For instance, although this book is not written in first person, the chapters about Sapphire were written in the tone of a teenager. I believed Sapphire was a 17-year-old girl. Most characters in this book are not necessarily good or bad, and I appreciate the nuanced nature of the characters because I feel that villains versus heroes, good versus evil, is a little antiquated. It also ensured that I was rooting for the characters' growth. Even the characters who weren't super sympathetic in the beginning, by the end I was celebrating the characters' development. Now, Invisible Girl jumps from Sapphire's to Kate's to Owen's storylines. The characters' individual stories become intertwined as the story unfolds. Because the book is written this way, I want to start by dissecting the characters one by one. So let's start with Sapphire, the first character we're introduced to. Sapphire is 17 years old. She does great in school. Everyone assumes she'll go to university. Her grandparents and parents have passed away, and she lives in an apartment with her uncle, Aaron. She was previously a patient of Rowan's. She initially started therapy because she began self-harming at 10 years old after being sexually assaulted by an 11-year-old boy named Harrison. She seems extremely self-sufficient, very independent, and she even has her black belt in Taekwondo. This is probably because she doesn't feel safe in her life, likely as a result of being attacked as a kid by Harrison. Now, I wasn't sure if this is something that would be addressed in the book, but I made a note about Rowan's previous 11-year-old patient with rape fantasies possibly being Sapphire's assaulter because he was also 11 years old. And I was right. Harrison was a prior patient of Rowan. After her therapy ends, Sapphire feels abandoned by Rowan and begins stalking him. I think therapy ending was especially hard for her to process because she has a lot of experience with abandonment or at least perceived abandonment. Her parents, grandparents, most of her family members are gone, have passed away. I think she also feels like therapy is unfinished because during their sessions, she never brought up her sexual assault, which was obviously a very impactful and traumatic event in her life. As I said, she starts stalking her old therapist. She's watching him at work with new clients, watching him at home with his family, and watching him cheat on his wife with a long line of younger women. 
she decides to sleep in the empty plot across from Rowan's family's home. She says she feels ungrounded and uncomfortable in her apartment and, and chooses instead to sleep in a sleeping bag outside in the cold, it's winter, in the construction site. We learn later that she suffers from claustrophobia. On Valentine's night, 2019, Sapphire disappears and the last person who claims to have seen her is Owen, who lives across the street from the Force family. The Force family being Kate, Rowan, and their two children, Georgia and Josh. I want to talk about Owen next. Owen quits his job as a college lecturer after being accused of inappropriate behavior towards women, including flicking sweat on women at a school party and showing favoritism towards males in his classes. He is offered the opportunity to take a course on sexism in the workplace in order to get his job back, and he decides to quit instead. He says that he didn't do anything wrong and that basically his accusers and the staff at the school are being too sensitive. I would describe Owen as a lonely, conflicted, hypocritical virgin, at least at the beginning of the story. I call him hypocritical because the way he sees himself isn't the way the readers see him after having access to his sexist inner dialogue. For instance, as I just mentioned, he, does, he denies doing anything wrong after being accused by several women of inappropriate behavior, which is immediately contradicted by the way he describes the moms he passes while walking home after quitting his job. On page 64, we read, where, sorry, what, <laughs> what are they when they're not at the gym or collecting their children from school? Where do they exist on the scale of humanity? He cannot imagine. This is the way he talks about women he passes on the street. Yikes, right? We then learn of his perusing, perusing of incel blogs and forums to find other men quote-unquote wrongfully accused of sexual assault or inappropriate behavior. He doesn't think he's a sexist man, but his thoughts and actions prove otherwise. All this being said, he becomes sympathetic as we read about his desire for companionship. His vulnerability on his date with Deanna from Tinder was relatable and honest. He tells her that he's extremely nervous for their date and the date goes exceptionally well. In a way, he has Bryn to thank for this. After meeting up with incel blog author Bryn, Owen decides he's not like this rapist freak. He realizes that he doesn't want to be associated with a group that blames the world for not being able to get laid and justifies the use of date rape drugs as well as rape. Bryn even gives him Rohypnol and encourages him to spread his seed regardless of consent. Owen is not a fan of this idea and he's actually disgusted by this man, Bryn. Because of this, I think he wanted to try something new on his date with Deanna and for him, a way to do this was to be vulnerable. At the end of the date, he feels seen by her, which is also a new experience since he often feels rejected by women. Owen is arrested for the abduction of Sapphire. He had told the police that he saw a girl in front of the Forest house, but at first he doesn't remember much after that because he's super drunk. This is right after his date with Deanna. The evidence against him includes date rape drugs found in his drawer, given to him by Bryn, 
a phone case on the ground outside his bedroom window along with Sapphire's blood on the side of his house. He says that he doesn't drink often, but it turns out that when he does, he blacks out. His lawyer, Barry, says that he suffers from fragmentary blackouts. He has lots of time to think about his life and what led him to being wrongfully accused while he's in jail. And thinking back, all his inappropriate advances towards women have been when drunk and he doesn't really remember the incidences. His behavior when drunk is possibly a physical manifestation of his internal thoughts towards women because we know he is misogynistic. The extent of his interaction with Sapphire the night she goes missing was that she asked him to help her climb up on his roof. He does so. He's so drunk that he goes back inside and she's like, wait, I need help down and ends up getting hurt when she jumps down from his roof. That's how her blood got under his window and when she loses her phone case. Why did she want to be on the roof? She wanted to watch and record Rowan and his mistress Alicia fighting, which I will talk more about when I talk about uh, Rowan and Alicia. Owen completes sexual conduct training and rehabilitation at the end of the book. He's really trying to change the way he thinks about women. Originally, rather than seeing women as people, every time he sees or talks to a woman, he primarily focuses on the fact that they're a woman. He asks the presenter at the training how he can change his thinking, and her advice to him is to say in his head, this is a human being wearing a red jacket, or this is a human being in need of my help. He takes her advice and implements it immediately. And I love this character growth as he's trying to dispel this sexism that has been internalized in him since he was a small child. As a child, he witnesses his father calling his mother a whore and rejecting her advances. To this day, he feels his dad hates him. This is a core memory that he attributes to his fear of women and rejection. This realization and this memory is what inspires him to visit his dad once he's out of jail. Another part of his fresh start is that he moves out of his aunt Tessie's house as he believes she has preconceived beliefs about him that won't change. I also think it's great that he has his own place. He's in his 30s now and we find out at the end of the book that him and Deanna are boyfriend and girlfriend, his first relationship. I want to talk about Kate. Kate feels guilty and unhinged. The power dynamic in her relationship has shifted to her husband because she has invaded his privacy and accused, and accused him of an affair but found no evidence. This was a year ago. She was right in suspecting infidelity, but again, she found no evidence, so she's left feeling like she did something wrong for snooping, and she feels crazy for being suspicious. She has two children, Georgia and Josh, and at this time she is scared for Georgia's safety because there is a sexual assaulter in their neighborhood who is groping women in broad daylight. Georgia claims that Owen followed her home one day and we find out that this was not his intention. He didn't mean to scare her. He didn't mean to follow her home. But I do think that Georgia's justified in feeling afraid because she's not the first girl or woman, woman to accuse him of creepy behavior. I don't have too much to say about Georgia, but she provides a nice foil for Josh. Georgia is open with her emotions. She's always got drama and gossip and she'll tell you exactly what it is. On the other hand, Josh is much more mysterious and aloof, making it easy to be suspicious of him or at least wonder what he's up to. 
I love Josh as a character and his mom loves him so, so, so much too. This being said, Kate starts to suspect him of possibly being a predator. She finds a balaclava and his dad's black running gear stuffed in the back of his closet. Some of the victims claim the assaulter was wearing this type of mask. That's why this is suspicious. She starts matching assault times and dates to Josh's schedule to see if it could have been him. Now, like I said, Josh is so sweet. He hugs his mom when he gets home, when he leaves the house, when he wakes up before he goes to bed. He's a teenage boy, but he seems to hold on to childhood innocence. Josh is such a love lovable character, but this view changes slightly when we find out he's smoking weed in the construction plot. Now, it's not super suspicious that he's smoking weed, but it is that he's hiding something from his mom who he seems so close to. It makes me think, what else is he hiding? Even his mom becomes suspicious and struggles to find an alibi for him during times when assaults occur. My suspicion of him disappears once he goes to the police with his mom. He tells them everything he knows about what happened on Valentine's Day and about Harrison. He's so honest and he's trying so hard to help his friend Sapphire. Because of the information he provides to the police, Harrison is arrested and charged and Owen is released from jail. The way he describes his mom melted my heart. This is 267 where he says, my mom is the best person in the world. She's so sweet and loving and kind. She'd do anything for anyone. He then goes on to chastise his father for cheating on his mom and kind of um, accuses him of taking advantage of his mom's kindness. His love for his mom is why he's so upset with his father for cheating and why he confronted him about the Valentine's Day card from his mistress. I think this respect for women carries to Sapphire. Josh and Sapphire become friends after meeting in the plot across from Josh's house. He is disgusted and angry when he hears what Harrison did to 10-year-old Sapphire and wants to help her seek revenge. He ends up following Harrison. He confronts him, wearing his dad's workout clothes and balaclava. This is why um, it was stuffed in the back of his closet. He had actually wet himself after Harrison yelled at him, called him a stalker, and called him the F-slur. Between Rowan, Owen, Josh, and Harrison, we have a variety of examples of types of men that exist in the world. This is an interesting POV. Another theme that comes up is characters in this book not always being what they seem. Characters' perspectives of other characters give a more well-rounded view of them as people. For example, I assume that Sapphire slept outside during winter to stalk Rowan and because she had this dependent relationship with him. But Josh hears about her sleeping outside and uses the word claustrophobia to explain why she felt so uncomfortable and ungrounded in her apartment. The way people are viewed becomes especially relevant in the story when people agree that Owen looks like the type to assault and abduct a young woman. He blames the way the world sees him for a lot of his problems, and although he's not completely innocent, he's not guilty of the crimes he was accused of. He was arrested based on circumstantial evidence and the fact that he fit the assaulter slash abductor profile. 
In the same vein, one might assume Rowan has high moral standards given his career. His job is to help people, right? But he is a serial cheater and potentially a sexual assaulter. Mask symbolism appears a few times in this book. Josh and his friend Flynn talk about taking off their masks in the new year. And during this conversation is when Josh um, talks about confronting his dad for cheating. Alicia says that Rowan wore a mask. Rowan wore a literal mask while assaulting women. This is insinuated based on Alicia's description of Rowan and Kate's suspicions. It's insinuated that Rowan assaults women while running in a balaclava. Remember, Rowan often goes for runs and some of the victims claim the assaulter was wearing this type of mask during attacks. Sapphire wore a metaphorical mask when she had her hood up. She called herself the invisible girl. This allowed her to stalk people as well as take photos and, and videos of others unseen. She also talks about having an alter ego when she's at school, after she puts on her makeup, she's with her friends, and I think this is a mask of sorts. Outside, when she's the invisible girl, she feels like a different person. She says she feels feral. I think there's a metaphorical connection between Owl Harry being the happiest moment of Sapphire's life and Harrison causing her trauma and being the reason for the worst times of her life. Remember, Sapphire was able to hold this owl named Harry at a birthday party as a kid, and she tells Rowan that this is her happiest memory. Why did the author choose the names Harry and Harrison? Maybe because childhood joy turned into trauma, you know, innocence turned into pain, Harry turned into Harrison, love turned into need. Because remember, she tells her therapist that love is when you need something from someone. After I finished reading this book, I was thinking about the reasoning behind Alicia hiding Sapphire in her apartment and keeping her secrets. One, her whereabouts, and two, information about her sexual assault. Alicia doesn't go to the police, despite the police using many resources to try and locate Sapphire and a lot of people being really worried about her, including her poor Uncle Aaron, who's just worried sick. The most obvious explanation is that Alicia was trying to protect Sapphire from Harrison who had threatened her life. I think the police would have been able to provide her protection if they went forward. Maybe Alicia feels like she owes Sapphire for saving her from Harrison when being attacked and in a way getting her away from Rowan. Sapphire shows Alicia the video she took of Rowan and Alicia fighting and they zoom in on his face and he looks so angry and evil and it shows him hitting Alicia. Alicia shares that Rowan may not be a good guy, that he may be a bad guy. Not only is he a cheater, but he's sexually assaulting women along with Harrison. Alicia is also a therapist, so I think she's probably inclined to help people and she thought she could help Sapphire. Sapphire could use a new therapist. She's processing her sexual assault experience and now she's dealing with claustrophobia. I think she should also address her stalking tendencies and her dependency on her prior therapist. Are these good reasons to hide a teenager in your apartment? Are there other reasons that I'm missing? In the end, Alicia seemed to be a good influence on Sapphire. They stayed friends. I'm currently reading another Lisa Jewell book. It's called Watching You. No spoilers, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm enjoying it so far. 
It's set in an affluent, gorgeous Bristol neighborhood where someone is murdered in their own kitchen. I have no idea what's going to happen. There's actually stalking and obsession themes in watching you as well, similar to Invisible Girl. I'd say it has a similar vibe, similar themes to Invisible Girl, which I like. So far, love the characters. Can't wait to see how everything unfolds. Let me know what you thought of the book Invisible Girl. As always, you can email me at brookclubpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.